Sorry, what did I miss? Everything. Anglo thieves. Gettle's gone. Alina, are you fake texting? It's super important. <laughs> oh, I might as well just growl, that'd be about it. I have failed the sisterhood. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. We're not here to judge. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 20, we know because we checked, of Anglophies. And we're going to talk about strong female characters and the fallacies therein. Because we have some feelings. That's usually true, but we really do. A lot. Many. This time. Hi, I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And, yeah. So, um, housekeeping first. Hannibal's been renewed. Yay! Yay! So much yes, more murder. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Congratulations boy. on Brian Fuller for getting a TV show that's gone past two seasons. This is literally the first time it's happened. <laughs> Which is sad in so many ways, but I'm very happy for him. It's true. And um, I think we all sort of live in both anticipation and fear of what season three will bring because of this season of season two we have seen some shit do you know that quote of will graham's of season where he says i feel the anticipation of being able to feel contempt well i feel the anticipation of being able to feel do not want (laughs) (laughs) yes The anguish has been high, and we've loved every moment, and then cried, and then laughed, and then made puns, and then gone back to anguish. Yep. And flowers. And And puppies. So many more puppies this season. It's true. We have names for... Well, Alana has a new dog. Oh, oh, but I I guess a moment of silence for Zoe slash Underbite Graham. Yeah. Who had apparently passed away at some point. We miss you, little Underbite puppy. You were our favorite. You were Brian Fuller's favorite, too. He told us. He told everybody. <laughs> okay, so. Strong female characters. <sighs> this, this is kind of a big topic, so we're going to do our best to keep it generally organized. And we'll probably fail miserably, but we're going to try. <laughs> Yeah, in an attempt to keep this organized, I thought that maybe we could start with strong female characters of children's literature and maybe some particular ones that affected us as children. Maybe maybe we should try to go with a definition first. Ah, no. That's a good plan. I'd love to hear you so- try. Yeah. Define, <laughs> define a strong female character. Well, okay. You're right. Maybe first a discussion of where the whole concept comes from and why and wherefore. And I guess... We could say that this has been born out of a need for an antithesis to the damsel in distress. I would agree with that. The idea that a female, a central female character in any given work of fiction will be the princess in the tower who needs to be rescued. I don't... I'm trying to think if that is necessarily true of only kind of modern fiction. Like, I want to go back to some of the kind of folklore and folk stories and see if that's necessarily true there or is the is the weak female character a modern invention? I I think 
that I think it goes back to exactly how we're defining. I mean, are we defining a strong female character as one that is literally strong and able to literally kick ass and knows Kung Fu and is physically strong as opposed to a strong characterization? I think there's a lot of people who kind of get those two things confused. And I think there's a lot of, um, I'm going to say screenwriters mostly who say, oh, well, we have a female character. We need to make her strong because we only have the one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is a, (laughs) (laughs) which is a whole other problem. And we'll get to that. If you ever noticed that about half the time I say, we'll get to that, we never actually do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our best to actually do it this time. Um, that if you have just the one female character, you need to make her so that she is physically strong and can hold up with the herd of boys. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I was thinking of... Um... The definition I'd like to go by right now for the purposes of this beginning discussion is, okay, can we think of stories where rather than being physically strong, it's a female character that has her own agency and mm-hmm. doesn't uh, and isn't just kind of a piece moved around the plot but through the actions of men? And to be honest, I kind of want to say that if I skip modern fiction and go back to, like, say, mythology or folklore, I, I think... I, I want to say that some of those, um, that they, they did have example of actual female major characters who had their own agency. To a point, and this includes, say, the Bible, mm-hmm. um, biblical stories, Greek mythology, what little I know of, say, Norse mythology. Certainly, they they were steeped in gender stereotypes of their time, but um, really, I don't think the women in those stories were limited to being just, you know, waiting for the guy to show up and do something. Mm-hmm. Not not always. Certainly sometimes, but not always. Sometimes they were plot devices. Like, a Helen of Troy is obviously a plot device. Mm-hmm. But then you have, like, Medea. Yeah. Well, the debate as to whether Medea is a strong female character, by our definition, has been going on for literally thousands of years. Same for people like Cassandra and Clytemnestra from the Aristaea. Right. It's like, well, one of them's a soothsayer who can't really do anything, and she's so passive in that way because she is literally forced by fate, controlled by men, to be unable mm-hmm. to do anything. And then there's the vengeful, murdering wife who gets her quote unquote comeuppance. I think our definition has changed by terms of storytelling that we, you know, use today in comparison to when you used them in hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, etc. And as society has changed, we have that. Um, to deal with and I think that we're still a little behind when it comes to what we consider modern Hollywood based storytelling because Mm -hmm. it's primarily run by men and their idea of the quote unquote strong female character isn't always a negative one but it is a very narrowly defined one right and when you only have one or two named women per per project then you fall into this idea that this woman needs to be everything for all women and that just doesn't work so well and that's when, when you're so used to having just one female character at a time sometimes you will take what you can get yeah mm-hmm. exactly i think i think the avengers franchise is 
started off a little a little tropey with that and as the the cinematic universe has grown the the female characters and their agency and their effect on the story has grown exponentially um and i hope that we get a black widow movie you hear that joss we want a black widow movie everyone wants a black widow movie we'd also like a black panther movie and no one really understands why we need to have an ant-man movie but whatever that's not what this podcast is about how does ant-man get a movie before captain marvel well, Edgar Wright's been attached to that thing for literally years now. I mean, he was put as a name to that project before Scott Pilgrim came out. So clearly it's something he's passionate about. I just don't know why. Yeah. Um, but it is depressing just how much that trope of, well, you've got one woman there, what the hell more do you need, has continued to this day. Look at the casting for, it's the Justice League movie, we're going to call it the Justice League movie, it's not Batman versus Superman. You've got... Right. I mean, there have any other names attached. I believe Holly Hunter has signed up to be in it. We have no idea who she's going to be. But we've mm-hmm. still got who's going to be Wonder Woman. And the, we all know in our hearts that this movie, ha- or she at least has to be interesting on some level, because if not, there's not going to be another Wonder Woman chance for quite some time, at least not under under this branch of DC, who are sinking so freaking fast when it oh comes to their Oh my god. DC. And um, we're going to... It's like watching link- the Hindenburg of comic books. Mm-hmm. It, it is. It is. Un- it is. We're going to link to Dana's essay on uh, <laughs> what bullshit DC has pulled this month and how Free Comic Book Day was just not a good day for DC and they don't seem to understand how that Free Comic Book Day is about getting new readers, right? Isn't that the idea? Maybe I'm confused. I don't know. It's not about appealing to your douchebag male fan base who just wants violence and women being treated like crap. That's not what it's about. Uh, I, uh, according to DC, apparently that's exactly what it's about. There must be some sort of Harry Potter Voldemort thing going on where DC and Marvel cannot survive while the other one lives. <laughs> because Marvel are doing brilliantly right now. Yep. They are knocking out, and they're proving time and time again that not only do women buy comics, but guys buy comics about women. But you know, mm-hmm. no wonder. Well, actually, independent back. comics, as far as I know, are doing fairly well too. The smaller companies like um, Image, and so <sighs> DC is lagging behind all of that. Don't they just have? Oh, what what poll was I looking at recently? Some numbers that uh, it was top twenty-five. It might have just been the top twenty-five sellers, mm-hmm. and DC had like only two titles in that. One of them was, of course, a Batman or Detective comics. And one was something else. Like it was, they're they're lagging ludicrously behind. Yeah. Jeff Johns' New Fifty Two does not work when you relaunch it with maybe five female-led titles, and also don't bother relaunching the one you are writing because God forbid anybody touches your continuity. This is not a red spot comic. DC Woman Kicking Ass had the figure. The only other character from a DC comic that wasn't Batman that had a comic in the top twenty-five for April was Harley Quinn. That's right. Wow. I mean, that does say something. And even though Harley Quinn has, you know, been in many variations a pretty despicably treated character, she's also a really fascinating one. And she isn't, a, you know, the definition of strong female character who can kick ass and don't need no man because she's screwed up to the nines. But I always enjoy reading about her. I think you need that kind of women. And they can be strong because, you know, if, every, if our definition of strong is defined solely by either physical strength or being a straw feminist... Mm-hmm. Then I think that's just as harmful for 
character development as having not having them there. It's the debate of any ver- representation versus none at all. Right. And that's something that extends beyond women. That extends to LGBTQ characters, to characters of color, to disabled characters, uh, characters of class, etc. Any non-white male character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Able-bodied. Heterosexual. <laughs> character. Side note, if you look at the really lineup for all, the, all these characters, I mean, Marvel are making a movie with a talking raccoon, but DC think that uh, Wonder Woman's too complex. Yeah. Talking raccoon and a giant tree man. <sighs> and bald Karen Gillan and Lee Pace and... And Zoe and, Saldana painted green? Yeah, green. and that guy from Parks and Recreation who got stacked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Let's rewind on, a little bit. Come on, DC. Come on. <laughs> you should do the whole rant of it. Like, comics is a whole hotbed of the whole strong female character. But I'd like to pull us back. Uh, let's... Okay. I'd like to pull us back chronologically. And give a little class to the proceedings. Let's talk about Shakespeare. Okay. Ah. <laughs> so, strong female characters. And, okay. Well, the first play that comes to mind, and which I have a whole other sort of issue is being Jewish, but Merchant of Venice. Mm-hmm. A character where the man is a bit of a damsel in distress. Yeah. And the woman has to save him. But she has to do it by dressing as a man. Like, the amount of essays you can get out of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure have been gotten out of that. And, you know, it's... I don't know, is it taught in high school? It wasn't taught in mine, but I'm sure somehow... I didn't of... get it, but I do know that it is a set text in a number of schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very weird one to teach because it's classified as a comedy and it is very funny in places but it's also hugely anti-semitic especially by not just by Shakespearean standards but by our standards and it is about a guy trying to claim flesh so yeah we I didn't have to read it in any of the many Shakespeare classes I took I will say however that my law school was originally a law school for women and was known as the Porsche school <laughs> so I, I just think that's pretty cool <laughs> that reminds me there's um there's this i guess 50s probably 50s film with uh carrie grant and myrna law and it's called the bachelor and the bobby soxer and there's a younger character played uh, i'm not sure it might have been shirley no it wasn't shirley there's there's uh, also a younger character in there like a teenage girl um who is from this family family where her older sister is a lawyer and it's kind of a family profession so at one point she she says you know i'm expected to be portia mm-hmm. so it's kind of become this uh, met- metaphorical name for <laughs> female lawyers yep the uh, thing about um all of the shakespeare characters that are women is that back then all those characters were played by men so mm-hmm. you have these really hilarious convoluted examples of men playing women who are then dressed as men and that appears so often in Shakespeare especially the comedy so you have Portia as an example I believe Twelfth Night is another one um, um, As You Like It? As You Like It is one I'm sure it happens so often so it's always fascinating to study Shakespeare from that gender perspective but I, I did do Shakespeare very briefly at university and our lecturer made the point that there was a many actors who felt that playing a woman would be a very feminizing experience for them and you know the equivalent of the gay panic basically mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. having a character who was as you know comparable to the male characters in terms of strength in terms of um attitude in terms of their role in the play did matter for the people that are playing them you know shakespeare wrote these plays quickly he wrote them for performance he wrote them you know, to get them on the stage as quickly as possible. So it would make sense for him to just sort of listen to the actors and go, okay, I hear you, I will do this for you. Mm-hmm. Also, it should be noted that 
obviously the context in which Shakespeare wrote a large amount of his plays was under the rule of a queen, a single queen um, who maintained her own uh, power by basically staying single and never marrying and having a consort. So I wonder if the amount of characters in his plays that even by modern standards we may we, we consider women who have their own agency is you know influenced by that he knew that the audience you know she, she was a patron she even demanded some plays uh kind of as for her personal taste so would it make sense for him to write these female capable female characters because he knew that all the you know the ultimate audience was um you know a woman with agency mm-hmm that makes you think sense. About that, and then you think about characters like um, the Taming of a Shrew, which yeah. is, you know, not yeah, a good I uh, <laughs> saw a production of Taming of the Shrew where the the roles were gender flipped, and it worked to an extent. There were certainly um, a few instances where there is definite rapey behavior on the side of uh, Heath Ledger's character from 10 Things of Fuck. I can't remember the names now. Yeah. Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> but we can all agree the best, ex- the best adaptation of that play is still 10 Things of Oh, I absolutely. 100,000%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would have been had it been a man doing this to a woman would have definitely been like wow, that's super rapey but with a woman doing it to a man it's played for laughs and that was it was still uncomfortable for me um there's definitely a lot of him just sort of Patricio that's it throwing Kate over his shoulders and just basically psychologically tormenting her yeah Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, he basically, the whole idea of taming the shrew is that he gaslights her mm-hmm. into, like, just giving up. But it's a comedy, guys. Yeah. But it's hilarious. Um, You know what? I think I'd just like to bust out the quote at this point and just see, maybe hold up the various examples up against it and, and see really what we think. Uh, who'd like to recite it? Raiden, do you have it up? Uh, Yes. Write interesting women. Write well-rounded women. Write complicated women. Write a woman who kicks ass. Write a woman who cowers in a corner. Write a woman who is desperate for a husband. Write a woman who doesn't need a man. Write women who cry. Women who rant. Women who don't take no shit. Women who are shy. Women who need validation. And women who don't care what anybody thinks. I'm totally reading this off of the GIF set with Miss Peggy. So I might have gotten things out of order because it was flipping. Uh, (laughs) um, And then the follow-up in the actual text is, they're all okay and all of those things could exist in the same woman. Yep. Uh, Which is a small part of of a bigger essay that we will absolutely link to. Um, and of course, basically, it's the idea of that Hollywood's very simplistic idea of trying to avoid criticism is, is like you said, to write a woman who can have fight physically. That's our strong woman. What are you complaining about? And the basic problem with that premise is that you're not writing a person. Right? What we as a female audience actually want is not, quote unquote, strong women. We just want people who happen to also be women. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it reminds me of actually another quote that goes around Tumblr, and I'm sorry I don't have an attribution. Maybe I'll try to find it for the show notes. And that was, uh, you know, when a black woman looks in the mirror, she sees a black woman. When a white woman looks in the mirror, she sees a woman. When a white man looks in the mirror, he sees a human being. Mm-hmm. And the idea being is that the more labels are put on you, the the less you feel like a human, and more like just the labels, right? So that connects to the strong woman because in st- what really that quote, you know, write interesting women is about is write a person and then make that person female. Whereas a lot of writers know they don't write people; they write people and then make them male, and then they write women. Mm-hmm. Which is why, as a person who happens to be female, I'm sitting here and go like, what is this walking stereotype? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's... There's a point of, like, take your human character and just make it female, which works to an extent, but there is certain realities to being a woman, to being a white woman, to being a black woman, to Mm -hmm. being a woman, that you can't just... You can't just flip things. Like, people talk about the gender flip Shepard in, what is it, Mass Effect? I'm totally talking on my ass here because I don't actually play video games. I do. <laughs> um, and, like, oh, you can totally just do that, and that works 100% of the time. No, it doesn't. Because there are realities to my life as a white woman in the United States that don't apply to a black woman in Scotland. And the lived experience and how I interact with the world and how the world interacts with me is completely different from that hypothetical black woman in another part of the world. It's that's just how it works. So you have to take that into effect into um, an account when you're writing. Yeah. Writing. But, and here's the counterpoint where like there is a genre or I don't know, a just, a division of fiction that doesn't have that excuse, and that's speculative fiction. You know, if you're writing sci-fi and fantasy, and you're using that excuse, that at that point becomes just an excuse, wouldn't you agree? Because, like you said, well, you are an actual white woman in the United States today, and comparing mm-hmm. to like a minority, a woman of minority color somewhere else, these are real. When you live on planet toxins in the year 31,000 right because we see these problems in speculative fiction all the time and it's and then we see the whining from the white male establishment about it my god (laughs) but you're right so much much whining white man's tears dude white man's tears it's basically what Raiden, what I'm saying is that what Raiden says is a completely valid argument because, of course, you're right. Because you, there's all sort of sociopolitical context that you can just put anybody into and it'll work. But, you know, some people will use that and that'll be valid. But when you take that into another context, you know what I mean? When they try to use that mm-hmm. same excuse in a context where it's no longer legitimate, that's when you see that, oh, actually, no... That was just bullshit. That was just you making excuses. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that you should take what I just said, you being the hypothetical writer that we're talking to, um, as an excuse to not do it because it's just too hard. It's just too hard. I'm going to fuck it up. Of course you're going to fuck it up. Do your best to not fuck it up. That said, Um, also, not every content, like those... um, 
political and social, you know, forces are not applicable all the time, even in stories set in our time. You know, like mm-hmm. sometimes it'll be applicable, and sometimes, no, you really could tell that story about all sorts of people. Yeah. Like, um, Gina Torres has talked about this in terms of her character on Suits, and there was an interviewer that asked her, well, do you think that they should bring up your race all the time? And she's like, no, because it is brought up all the time by the fact that I exist. And when it's appropriate to bring it up, then yes, that is a thing we should do. But when it's not, I mean, it's still there because you look in the mirror and, oh my God, look at that. still a black woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think at this point I would like to go back and um, talk about what strong female characters meant to us when we were growing up versus what it means to us now. Mm -hmm. And this kind of will intersect maybe a little bit with our recent episode on, you know, what affects us. Uh, as children, though, like not 100%, I, I don't think we'll be completely repeating ourselves. But I do think perhaps the definition, because when I, as, as a child, my definition of what I consider strong female character was probably more, much more simplistic than it is now. Mm-hmm. But also because as a child, you just need certain things for your development. So I would name off uh, Fantagoro from the Fantagoro slash Cave of the Golden Rose movies, Princess Simmerine from the Enchanted Forest Chronicles. Oh, and I had a third one that's slipping my mind now. Um, but basically it was this idea of, I could tell already that a lot of the fairy tales did have that, you know, the prince is going to save the princess. Mm-hmm. And any story that subverted that into the princess is going to pick up the sword on her own and kick ass all on her own really meant a lot to me. And those are the slightly more simplistic definition because that is just kind of, oh, well, it's a woman who does her own fighting. Although mm-hmm. I would say that they were very well executed. Um, but perhaps even more importantly, um, no, there were other women who were protagonists of their story but could still be weak, you know what I mean? Could still not be the good role model. Mm-hmm. Like Because Princess Simmerine is just marches in there to talk to those dragons. <laughs> and it's completely awesome. So... Those characters really, as opposed to, you know, Snow White, who, who is a protagonist of the story, but does need to be saved. Right? The, the, the very typical version of it. Yeah. Um, so, and I think those really meant a lot to me, and I'm glad I had them as I developed. And perhaps, yes, as, if, as an adult, they don't supply everything I want out of a protagonist for a story to me to enjoy. Um, but I think they they fulfilled the role really well for a child. Well, when you're younger, you haven't had the chance to be completely disappointed with the entire world and what it offers you as a woman yet. So <laughs> I know that was my experience. I don't think it was until I was really a teenager where I sort of thought, huh, okay, the world does kind of hate us. Mm-hmm. And the example, for me, there was a couple who were really the big influences me. And I don't know if they would define them as strong female characters. They were just sort of characters who I enjoyed watching who got to be part of these worlds that I really liked so one of the biggest ones for me when I was growing up was Lisa Simpson mm-hmm. because there was you know because when you're this small geeky little girl who reads too many books and doesn't have that many friends it's really cool to see someone on TV who gets to do that and who is very funny and who gets to put her dad and her brother in her place 
And I still have a huge soft spot for Lisa Simpson. I kind of still wish I was Lisa Simpson, even though I'm now going to be 24 this year. Um, and then later on, when I got a little older, the equivalent for me for that was Daria, because she was someone who I would definitely describe as strong, because even though she was occasionally very arrogant, very um, um, deliberately nihilistic in the way that she approached the world, there was something quite reassuring about that, that she could do that and still function on a daily basis when everyone was telling you otherwise that, oh, well, you've got to go out and make friends, and if you don't smile at people, how will they know that you're not lovely? And all of these horrible things that just made you want to curl up under the bed and read depressing poetry. Mm-hmm. And then oh, the other example that was big for me and basically everyone else my age was Hermione from Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Well, as I've gotten older, I'm still a huge Hermione fan, but I am sort of aware of some of the gaps in the stories in terms of the other women of Harry Potter. Um... Lavender Brown was a big example for that. Uh, the fact that there are so many who are just sort of mentioned in the background, and they're not the only ones. It's not just women that that happens to in the story. It's, you know, you can't focus on all of Hogwarts when your story is based on three people. Mm-hmm. But the sort of that trope of having the two guys and a girl, and the girl has to be the sensible one, even though she is sort of put down quite a bit for it, even though she's ninety percent of the time right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's a perfectly logical way that you could just make that entire series about Hermione because she does everything for those guys. One of my favorite <laughs> quotes is it's from Deathly Hallows, part one or part two? No, part one, when Harry tries to go on his own and Ron catches him and so he's like, and what? And leave Hermione? We wouldn't last two minutes without her. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> Accurate. Who had the bag of holding at the wedding? Um, I think. The first example that comes to mind in terms of kind of childhood development on this subject is you're going to laugh so hard and I'm going to totally deserve it is the Arnold Schwarzenegger Red Sonia movie from the mid 80s. Yes, which is a really bad, it's an objectively bad movie. I love it. It's, it's so ridiculous, but it's just the best. To be fair, Red Sonia is making a comeback right now because Gail Simone's writing her and is apparently doing a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Red Sonia's cool again. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I have every intention of reading the trades um, when I have more disposable income. Uh, I got I got suckered into the Hawkeye comics. I didn't want to, but it happened. Pizza dog, pizza dog. Um. So. So there's that. I mean, that was sort of my first example of a woman with a sword, and you you can literally trace my desire to have red hair to that movie. So thank you, Arnie. I appreciate it. I do. That happened. I'm a little bitter <laughs> that you, you that movie is your strong female character, but you remember it by the male actor. Yeah, well, yeah. Learn to get a Nielsa's name. She's awesome. Sorry. Also Scandinavian. How do you remember? You are such a disappointment to your people right now. I am so. a disappointment to my people. <laughs> that is That is accurate. Um, hey, when I was growing up, the only big Scottish thing we had was Braveheart. How do you think I felt? Well, you're better than Braveheart. It said so in our first episode. 
Uh, it's true, but <laughs> I'm gonna put that on my CV or something. You absolutely angry. should. Absolutely should. Very, very low bar has been set there. <laughs> was Red Song actually her first movie? According to this, it was. Wow. Yeah. She was so bad in it. Didn't they remake it recently and it was terrible, apparently? No. I don't think so. Or if it was, it was such a small flash in the pan I didn't notice. I'm sure, because I know that Robert Rodriguez was going to do it and maybe he didn't do it. Because he was going to do it with Rose McGowan, apparently. No! Oh god, no! They never got round to it, apparently. I'm thinking of the fact that they did the Conan the Barbarian movie remake, which was apparently terrible. Yeah, um, but I haven't seen that, but <laughs> Jason, Jason Momoa, probably worth watching, just really just to turn of brain, look at pretty. It's good that he's doing things these days that aren't just turning up at Game of Thrones conventions, reminding everyone he was in that show. <laughs> um, yeah, she was the Dark Witch in Fantagirl. I'm like, that's, she was also that, she was. MDB's being weird about her acting credits somehow. Mm. Oh, there <laughs> they are, yeah. Um... So, yeah, that's my story. <laughs> Nobody's going to name Nancy Drew? Also bad. She's not a thing in Britain at all. Yeah, Nancy... Uh, I tried. I tried Nancy Drew. I was much more of a Trixie Belden girl. <laughs> um, and that was, as I got a little older, um, when one of my neighbors was cleaning out their basement and gave me a box of books... Which included a couple of originally original Trixie Beldens, um, but I I liked Trixie because she, she was kind of, was unabashedly feminist. Um, she was still a little bit in that being a tomboy is awesome, but her friends were definitely on varying scales of of femininity. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, like her, her friend Honey really liked sewing and cooking and being a gracious hostess, and how important that was to some of their their crime solving adventures. And her brothers would be like, "No, Trixie, you're a girl. You can't do this." And she'd be like, "How about you go fuck yourself? I'm gonna go do this thing that you are too chicken shit to do." And it's entirely possible I'm going to get almost arrested or killed. But I'm going to solve the crime and you're going to suck it. (laughs) Fuck y'all. I mean, these were written in the 60s, so that may have been paraphrasing a little bit, but not a lot. You know what? I'm going to bring up our Russian character here because I kind of feel like I want to inject some more of that culture. But... um... Um, Alisa, the girl from the 21st century. Those were really big. Um, the books themselves are really great, but I guess they, I'm going to guess that they kind of owe some of their popularity bubble at, uh, in part to a movie. Um, so this is a character uh, fr- from a series of books and then later adaptations of movies and cartoons, uh, basically about a young girl who lives like tells us 21st century but like in the future but they imagine that what we're believe now would be far removed 
It's it's one of those. It's kind of like Star Trek. Where's my fucking flying car? Yeah, exactly. So her dad is the director of a zoo. um, And sometimes they fly around the galaxy and have adventures that have to do with with the zoo. Sometimes it's just like her and her classmates. They're fantastically written books. They are by a male author, but he basically started them for his daughter. Mm -hmm. And they're a very, very long-running series. In the end, he was writing them for his grandson, that daughter's son. Um, they're really great. They're these basically adventure stories about her, and so she was she was kind of these can-do plucky adventure girl. Uh, it was really fun to read about and fun to watch movies about. And it was just such a fun world to imagine, where like her classmate found an old treasure map. Her class—they're in Russia, right, in Moscow. So he finds an old treasure map. So he's just gonna jet over to South America for the afternoon to try to find the treasure because the future. You could do that, and wouldn't any kid want to live in that world? <laughs> you just jet over to another part of the planet. Because mm-hmm. she has adventures off-planet, and there's space pirates, and that was really fun. <laughs> jet to another part of the planet. <laughs> but you know what, Raiden? In when you were talking about Trixie, you brought up something interesting. You said like some of her friends right, had fit the girl stereotype more. So let's talk about stories that have this strong female character and decide that because she's strong, the quote-unquote not strong, like the weak one, the not strong ones have to be slut-shamed or shamed for being typical women or fall into stereotypes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if the main character is a tomboy and she's strong, then that means that the ba- the the evil girl is always going, oh, she's going to like makeup and boys and that's bad because we're fighting against the patriarchy here and you're not supposed to like makeup and boys. Please see 70% of all of the evil women in old school 1980s, 1990s romance literature ever. Oh, please see. See also, 80, see also 80% of every female antagonist in most of the young adult novels in the past. <laughs> That's what I was just going <laughs> to And it comes up so often and it's contrasting with the heroine who is so naturally beautiful and stunning. She doesn't need to wear makeup. She doesn't need, she's not like all those other girls. Because oh, and it makes as, her so different. And oh, it's so different. Right. Oh, I, I wear my hair in a ponytail, and I wear shorts and sweatpants. She wears short shorts or whatever the hell Taylor Swift is saying. <laughs> no, is that Taylor Swift? Or yes. Oh God, Taylor Swift. You I think she, with me. she's done as much for that trope to exacerbate it over the past three or four years than anyone else in media. Um show notes tag remind us to link to the Mallory Olberg toast uh, article the piece with the typical <laughs> YA protagonist do you guys remember fairly recent post I'll link in the show notes is that is that also the one she did about um, you know terrible features that people only have in boots where it's like oh my eyes are too big I'm such yes I think that was that was it's my either that so one or related. how could anyone look at me it's I like, always loved it I am way too slender I just love that <laughs> yeah. My and my so skin, white and pale. yeah, no, my skin is much to porcelain. Really, who would love me? <laughs> There's that trope, right? Of like, yeah. she thinks she's ugly, but every single descriptor she thinks of for herself as beautiful is, you know, yeah. something associated with beauty. Gotta Which love also it. Pushes her you don't know that you're area. beautiful, and that's what makes you beautiful. Na 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 na. <laughs> <laughs> But Taylor Swift and One Direction in the space of three minutes. Seriously? 
I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. If I can work in Hanson somehow, I win a thing. I'm Shakespeare sure. has been officially counterbalanced. <laughs> well, in terms of the character, the female character, that contrast between the girl who wears too much makeup and dares to show a modicum of sexuality versus the quote-unquote pure plain girl, but who still happens to be incredibly beautiful, because none of these girls are allowed to, for one moment, be described as ever being slightly overweight or having, you know, acne-scarred skin or a short, non-feminine haircut or any of these things. So the trope of that kind of female character is still within the realms of a very patriarchal definition of beauty, but it's not proper patriarchal beauty because she's not wearing makeup, because that's really special and evil and, you know... And someone who never wears makeup who's worn makeup on about three occasions in her life, I find it just so insulting when that one comes up. Mm-hmm. So actually, one thing I want to bring up in the context of this conversation is is Bond girls. And there's a specific... Oh, no, no. no. I'm going to make a specific point. And there was, it, there was some sort of... I don't think it was an article. I think it was a critical video review um, ta- that might have been talking about Bond in particular. But they mentioned something about Bond girls, which was that you, because these movies are made over such a long span of you know decades, you can very interestingly trace the changing attitudes towards women through them. Where, for example, the '60s Bond girl was at the time of the move that the con- in the context of the moves were released was the strong female character because it was female sexual liberation time. Mm-hmm. So the fact that she was very sexy was supposed to be, you know, kind of um, a positive for women. And then so a few decades passed and it started being seen as, oh, look at them being objectified and sexualized. And then those characters were starting to be seen as shameful for women. And the new ones had to be more of like, I guess, the action girl or the scientist, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a, a, a very interesting way really to trace what, what, any, what a strong f- female character kind of meant to any particular context because I, I do think they had a point, right? Like the women of the sexual liberation era versus the women of then I guess the, the more um, the, the, the feminist push for equality mm-hmm. and, and the, the change of those attitudes. Now granted um all of these female characters were conceived kind of by men for men. <laughs> so I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I don't think then we can necessarily dismiss the modern attitudes towards the older Bond girls as, no, you just don't understand. She was the strong woman of the time. Mm-hmm. Kind of, yes. I think like there's always the the bias that they were looked through and the, and the lens through which they were filmed um, but I still but I still think it's, it's it's kind of worth looking at is that don't always dismiss something um, that seems bad to you now without considering the context in which it was made at the time I get that I think the issue with the Bond girls in particular is that while the times have changed in terms of what we define as an you know a strong female character, the films haven't changed their definition and they're still willing to use women as collateral damage on a frequent basis. Mm-hmm. So really, like, as we have, we talked about when we did our, um, you know, spy fiction episode, we talked about Skyfall, how it's really a, a film that takes two steps forward in terms of the women, but a huge step back at the same time. Yeah. And that really seems to be the pattern for modern Hollywood-funded mainstream filmmaking of the 21st century right now, which is... Mm-hmm. You'll get your women in there. 
but they're probably going to be the first one to die. Unless there's a black guy there. Sorry about that. Sorry, black people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always got an example of this, actually. Um, for, I have... I like watching TV shows about really fucked up people who do really fucked up shit, mm-hmm. which explains why I'm a fan of all. But I decide, so I will watch anything with that theme. So I decided to start watching the Fox TV show the following, <laughs> which your is, tweets have been delightful. Yes. I, I don't watch the show; I watch your tweets, and that's <laughs> that's good enough for me. It you do is, it so we don't have to, Kaylee. <laughs> basically, it is garbage. So it and it's also higher rated than Hannibal, which hurts me. But it's about. This, it's about Kevin Bacon, who really needs money because Bernie Madoff stole all of his, so he's working on TV. And he is this, the haunted alcoholic cop who sent this murdering cult leader to jail, played by James Purifoy, who I swear was a good actor once upon a time. I don't know what's happened here. I actually saw like three to four episodes of the show for James Purifoy. I wanted so bad to like <laughs> But he gets, basically the idea here is that this guy is a serial killer who is inspired by the works of Edgar Allan Poe, who ends up forming his own murder cult. And it makes no sense on a psychological level, makes no point on a storytelling level. And the way that women are used in that story is beyond offensive. There's the, his essentially his teen fangirl, there's his ex-wife who ex- exists to be the stupidest character on the show for no other reason. And also had the affair with the detective. Let's and she had an affair with Kevin Bacon, because that's sensible. There are the fact that the majority of people killed on that show are women who are lingered over as they are shoved into car boots, bleeding and sobbing and begging for life and then gleefully killed off is so common in fiction right now, particularly fiction of that kind of theme. If you also watch The Blacklist, it happens quite a bit with The Blacklist. Oh my god. If you're a character of colour, you are going to die on that show so quickly. I just caught up with that one, by the way. They killed off Parmendranagra, which I should have expected, but was still pissed off about. And the thing that the following was doing is it buys into so many tropes about what we consider dramatic television, which is lots of people will die, and it will primarily be women. The women don't get to play a part in the story. They don't even get to be interesting psychos. And I think that that would be really great to see on TV, because there's a really interesting place on TV for them, instead of having women just be the victims or the you know, the, the golden shining uh, good girls who have to save the day. So just watching the show and watching it, it gets worse and worse. And it really has. I mean, in the second season, they introduced Connie Nielsen, who is leading her own murder cult. Because murder cults spring up on this thing like trees. Everyone sure. starts a murder cult. Sure. And she's got, like, creepy, weirdly incestuous twins. And then there's all these French women who hang around her for some reason. And then she sleeps with James Purefoy. And then he doesn't want to hang around with her anymore because she's too crazy, even for the murdering creep. And then she just goes crazy because the man has ditched her. Because it doesn't matter that this woman is a billionaire who has her own cult of murderers. She got ditched by a dude and now she wants vengeance. I I, I hate to be arrogant here, but I could literally write a better show than this. (laughs) If you follow me on Twitter, you know I could do this show so much better. It's also just made me appreciate just how much better some things I watch are in the way that they treat women. Even when the show gets really dark. Because the fact that nobody seems to bat an eyelid over the constant bloody beating murders of all of these women, some of whom are named characters, most of whom aren't. They are really just props. And this is considered good dramatic television. It's like a 62% of Metacritic or something, but these people are really stupid. (laughs) But I mean, because these are the same stories I like, and it's really hard to find these stories where even women get to be the interesting dark character, because they are so often perceived either as they don't get to be that character at all or when they do 
they are then criticized for being the bitch or the psycho or the whore mm-hmm. or um, the really bad example of misogyny in fiction because the idea that a woman can't go beyond any specific definition of what defines an interesting or strong female character is so narrow and I think it's getting narrower for a lot of people maybe because we're just sick of seeing the same things over and over again mm-hmm. and we've reached sort of you know we've really reached a tipping point of it and maybe we can't there are a lot of people who can't take it over. and I understand that but I think that that can also backfire really badly so when you do even see a woman who does a lot of things you know she, she there's a lot of tropes are like the, the Lara Croft series, for example, which has developed so much over the years, but still dives into a lot of those terrible ideas. But the, the idea that we can't even let that evolve in any way is really sad. Rant over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have to give Kaylee space to rant. <laughs> <laughs> when I finish watching the following, I will continue my rant. I haven't finished yet. <laughs> but it's getting a third season, so there will be more. Oh, great. <laughs> Um, I right, swear James fight Purifoy for a used Hannibal to be a Yeah, I know. But I swear James Purifoy used to be a good actor at some point in his career. I remember him being good on Rome. He was mm-hmm. great he was on Rome. Rome. He was like really charismatic and interesting. And I, not for one moment do I believe anyone would follow this man into a murder cult. Unless it was just because he's good looking. Which he is. He's really good looking. Rome was very interesting for, you know, the quote, strong female character. Because it was so much about the background politics of being a woman. In a... In a Bridget patriarchy yes and mm. no like it would but yeah that's the Rome would be very interesting to discuss in that context because it kind of had everything both the problems and the good parts you know what I mean yeah I mean sort of by the end it almost seemed to boil down that all of these his major historical events that sort of defined the western world happened because a woman was pissed at a man about something and she was probably naked at the time. No, well, Lindsay, was, yeah. Lindsay Duncan was na- was not naked on the show. So she was too classy for that. Yeah. <laughs> Even in the lesbian sex scene. <laughs> that 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 is true. Um, so I think, Rome, I think Rome is also really defined by the fact that it was a show on HBO, and it was really one of the defining shows of the network in terms of showing here's what you can get away with on cable with a big budget. Yeah. And. That is really one of the cases where you have to balance. Well, yeah, they are all kind of well, naked, well, but they're also really interesting characters. But then there's also people who... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Now, speaking of, because you just said about... You said there was HBO and big budget and if, what you can get away with. And really, okay, Game of Thrones, right, is a show that has a big following, you know, and, and it was so, like, touted as the, the next re- great thing in TV. But more increasingly, more and more, now that we are at the end of, what, season four or five, right, um season four i guess we're in the middle of season four yeah yeah people yeah. are starting to i i see more and more people call it out on look yeah like, these are very gratuitous breasts we really didn't need these breasts here well i mean people have been calling that out since kind of since the beginning because there were plenty of times in the first season where somebody would sit down and go okay let's explain to the audience exactly what the fuck is going on but to make it more interesting than a as you should know speech we're gonna have sex be involved so we're gonna have Littlefinger explaining to prostitutes who are auditioning for him like how the political situation in King's Landing is playing out and that has that's been true of the entire show mm-hmm. um, I think that people people are just finally getting tired of it 
And they're also, they're also getting tired of the justifications that horrific things can happen on this show to women because it's historically accurate. Because as we all know, there were shitloads of dragons in the Middle Ages. And, and the yeah. funny thing is, it's not necessarily. There's a really fantastic um, series of posts I follow on Tumblr. It's called Meta Mondays, and it's written by a fan of the show, who, uh, a woman who's a fan of the show and is a medievalist. She's a historian. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what she does. So sometimes she'll write up, she'll have these write-ups of she'll take some feature of the book slash show and then compare it to actual history and say like was this accurate sometimes it's clothing and makeup and sometimes it's the position of an illegitimate child and recently she did one on say the Dothraki versus the cultures in which they were based mainly the Mongols I think Mm -hmm. like the Mongol and as she pointed out actually at the height of the empire this was not a place where rape and murder happened after. In fact, these were illegal. There were laws and rape and murder was illegal. And it was actually considered one of the safest places on the planet at the time because of how strictly laws were inferred. Like law enforcement was very well practiced. Mm-hmm. So we have this idea of barbaric cultures, which tend to be non-white, non-European. Mm-hmm. And then we use them further to perpetrate for the violence against women. Like what the scene that, for example, Kaylee brought up uh, also, you know, the, oh, well, let's have exposition or is it you reading the, and then prostitutes are petitioning in the background, mm-hmm. right? It's like, it's literally women as props. Yeah. There, and was a, I, um, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch where they were joking about Game of Thrones and it says, we've brought in our new advisor at the show. It's a 13-year-old bot and it's Andy Samberg going, yeah, here was a scene that didn't have any boobies in it. And I thought, we should add boobies. And I really <laughs> feel like that is what the creator, that's what the showrunners have basically decided. Because it is, I mean, I've, I've, I have begun watching Game of Thrones. I am not that far in. But I don't mind nudity on television. I genuinely don't. If you watch something like The Sopranos, there's a lot of it. But at least... Don't be so obviously gratuitous, but just because you're on HBO, that doesn't mean that you have to lay it on so thick. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of claim, particularly when they make these accusations that it was historically accurate, and as you've seen, that is BS. And then they use that same um, justification for why the show is as white as it is, because there were no people of colour in the Middle Ages. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I like, I don't... Just know, because you wrote theory. them out of history doesn't mean they weren't there. Yeah. Speaking I think of, that's that's contributed to it. You know, there's been we've been written out, women have been written out of history so much. Same with people of color, same with LGBTQ people. But they, they, you have to when you look back for these stories and you find such you know limited uh, means, and it's just used to prop up the idea that they were never there in the first place. Mm-hmm. It, it's a kind of a vicious cycle. You, as a person of power, which is usually a white person, write minorities out of history and then use that as an excuse to write them out of contemporary, of, yeah. of, of the present. Yes. Kind of a vicious cycle. Yeah. But to get back to the, the topic at hand, of I think Game of Thrones has has sort of mixed results in terms of strong female characters. There are people who are like, oh my god, Arya is the best. Arya is like the <laughs> ur example of a strong female character. And Sansa's the worst. Oh my god, she's just terrible and weak and simpering and she doesn't know anything and Arya's awesome and Sansa's terrible and I hope she gets raped and dies. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, what keeps how I keep hope in these situations is how the well the, the actors then understand the characters because when you say this whole like Arya's awesome rant to Maisie Williams she'll you can you be like she's <laughs> turning into a psychopathic murderer what are you talking how can yeah. you not see that yeah and I think I think they're 
really good examples, Sansa and Arya, of two different ways to be strong. I think Sansa is fascinating because she's learned to wield the weapons that she's allowed to have, which is emotional manipulation, which you see her deploying in season two a lot against Joffrey. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has figured out how to be just snide enough so that someone like Tyrion knows what she's saying and everyone else is like, yes, good girl, Sansa. Mm-hmm. She- and what's interesting is that, you know, they, they have this, they've, they're pitted against each other in this dichotomy, but all those arguments against Sansa, like, why aren't they being used against, say, Caitlyn? Right? Because there's this whole idea of she's like her mother, like her mother was a proper, and I mean, I hate Caitlyn as a person for a whole other slew of reasons. <laughs> um, most of them named Jon Snow and how, you know, not to treat innocent children. Anyway, but, you know, like, this this was a character who's considered a strong female character by a large a number of the audience of both books and, and um, show. And she works, like, all of her strength come from, like, within the gender structures to which mm-hmm. she's confined. Why isn't she criticized? Like, why does it have to be Sansa? Well, I think, A, because there's a foil. Right, because if there's a good girl, there always has to be the bad girl. Right. And I think B, because she's young. Mm-hmm. Because as we all know, teenage girls suck and we can just rip them apart as much as we want. Exactly. I mean, yes, there there are things that Sansa has done which are not... Ob- like, when you look at them from an objective standpoint, they're not the smartest thing. But if you look at them from her point of view... She, she's doing the best she can with the information she has. Which is exactly what the quote that we that we brought up is talking about. You know, they, it's not about being perfect. Mm-hmm. It's about being a person, a real person. Yeah, but women aren't people, apparently. Mm. Nope. <sighs> nope. And, I mean, and Game of Thrones has a, a large number of named nuanced female characters um, that have their different motivations so you're not pinning the entire representation of an entire gender on one or two people Mm -hmm. Um, so you can actually have the, the differences the different types of women involved and it's not like well you're just you know feeding into a single stereotype I mean when you have when we get our inevitable Bond villain it's Chiwetel Ejiofor I really hope I pronounced that right I tried Um, and we're like oh we've never seen a black dude as a villain before and people are like aren't you happy you have a black dude on Bond at all well no because you only have the one and you've made him a bad guy and which just feeds more into the stereotype type of black is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, I'm trying to remember whose quote it was. I think it might've been about sleepy hollow and it had to do with like, you know, the, the, you, you have the, the, the bad guy's the minority because, oh, well, we have all these white men, we need a minority, but of course all the heroes parts have been cast, so it has to be the villain. And I think it was the Sleepy Hollow writers who talked about how the diversity of their cast allows them to... The villains could be whoever! 
The villains can be whoever, and they can kill off as many white people as they want. <laughs> yeah. There's a strong female, like, strong female character. It's Abby Mills. How much do we love Abby Mills? Um, all of it. All of it. All so much. Of, I, there are no words for how much I love her. In that show, okay, let's, if we talk about the diversity of strong female characters in that show, we have Abby, her sister, and, um, the wife. Katrina. Katrina. Thank you. Um, who I would argue all fall into some definition of strong female character. Mm-hmm. Um, probably Abby's sister is kind of the, the more stereotypical, you know, fighter, kick-ass woman. Mm-hmm. Um... And then, of course, Katrina, I think partly because she's the, the character out of time, so she kind of belongs to that. Oh, well, she could only wear dresses, and she was the wife, right? But she also has mystical right. powers, which are appropriate for a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Abby kind of in between. Abby, <laughs> she's just so wee. <laughs> oh. I think one of the things that's really important for Abby in Sleepy Hollow as well is that the male leader of that show completely respects her. Mm-hmm. Because it's so common to see those kind of characters just be the butt of a lot of, of a lot of put downs, particularly yeah. from male characters. And he never does that. He he may open doors for her and things, but he also addresses her as lieutenant. And, you know, he knows that she's the one in charge. And I love that. I love their relationship. That so British much. lieutenant has charmed American audience. Just charmed the pants of American audiences. I not think just, and, no, and not just the pants. Yeah. Like, well, I, I'm using pants in both the American and and the British okay. sense here. <laughs> but I, like 50% of that show's popularity is all about the way Tom Meissen says lieutenant. I would agree with that. And 45% is John Noble. <laughs> um. Actually, I know we talk a lot about Hannibal because we're kind of trying not to turn ourselves into a Hannibal podcast. We're not right. encroaching on your territory, Ian and Theo. <laughs> um, but I kind of do want to bring it up here because I do want to talk about the characters like Alana. Mm-hmm. Or for that matter, Margot this season, but I think specifically about Alana. Um, I mean, the show, as much as we love it, is a very... I do think it's a very male-dominated show, but it does have two very strong male leads, mm-hmm. which, um, with amazing actors and chemistry and, you know, kind of a dominating... I mean, Hannibal is supposed to be the dominating presence here, so... And Clarice isn't even a part of the story yet, so that's all fine. Um, so, in some ways... I don't know. Alana is... Some of her story just fits the kind of bad trope so well, you know, from being the love interest to being used and deceived. Um, but this, but I don't know if I don't that I'm not criticizing it more because I just love the show in general, so I'm forgiving it. Or are there notes about Alana that counteract all the tropes and really make it more more realistic? What do you guys think? Um, well, the thing about Alana is, um, as well, if you've read the books as well, Alana Bloom is a guy called Alan Bloom, and his basic defining characteristic is he's a guy that's good at his job. He has no bearing on the plot of Red Dragon at all. Mm-hmm. So I was really glad just to see the fact that there is a character like Alana there, and I definitely understand the criticisms of her being solely seen as sort of a love interest pawn to be played around with. But I also. I completely understand where Alana is coming from because from what she knows about what's going on she thinks that this man who she cared about very greatly 
has become so emotionally damaged that he is willing to kill people or have other people kill for him. And there is this figure of stability in her life who is this extremely handsome, well-off, intelligent psychiatrist who was her mentor and her friend and has been here there for her. And he's single. He plays the pheromon. So, of course, she would want to, you know, find that kind of stability there. And we have seen that evolution change, as we saw with last week's episode, because I haven't seen this week's yet. Mm-hmm. Where she has to confess to Jack that she does she can't trust him anymore. She doesn't know who he is, and I think Will has been especially cruel to her. And I don't know if that's coming from a place of him spurning her because he feels he was being abandoned by her, or if it's because it's part of his larger game plan. I think that that's I'll admit that's one area where I think the writing's being a little sketchy. Well, I haven't seen this week as I said, but I, I think that it's important to have that kind of character like Alana who bridges bet- the gap between Will and Hannibal in terms of her approach to psychology. She is someone who isn't as empathetic as Will, but she is also someone that is willing to understand how to create that distance for herself. And she is very good at her job. And mm-hmm. I appreciate that. So I-, I think when people say, oh, she is very emotional, it's like, well, yeah, human beings get emotional. We're not all like Hannibal. That yeah. would be really bad. Yeah, being being emotional is not bad. And stop <laughs> stop saying that it is. Yes, I get angry in arguments sometimes. That's not. Men get angry in arguments sometimes. Why is that? It's always. Um, I mean, this is a, a fairly well defined and explored and, and proven point, right? Like when an attribute is attributed to a man. It doesn't automatically become negative, but as soon as it becomes attributed to a woman, it up it acquires a negative connotation. Yep. Oh yeah. But I think that's also interesting. This a lot of people criticize Alana for being emotional when the lead of that show is a guy with pure empathy. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of his job. And also, I feel like she's probably better in control of her emotions than Jack Crawford is, uh-huh. who can who flips the volume, at the, you know, at a tap, which I find hilarious. I do love me some Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. But I appreciate, I, I know that some people have been criticizing the show, some of it legitimately, a lot of it really unfairly, and I, I will probably get to that when we do our Hannibal episode. But the fact that these characters are even there means so much to me, because I love these books, but they are proper straight white sausage fest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and when it's characters, well, Beverly is barely in the book, and mm-hmm. um, Bella isn't in the book at all, for example, but Dahlia is a totally new character. Margot is a walking stereotype who exists to be this tool of torture porn. Freddy's a man in the books. Freddy's a guy in the books. Freddy has a really awesome girlfriend in the books, so I'm kind of hoping this Freddy will get a girlfriend. Um, Beverly was a male character in the books, right? No, Beverly no, was a female character. Was a woman? She, she okay, wasn't yeah. Asian. She was just some okay. lab rat that you know didn't really do much. It, it's one of those names that kind of could be either or, so I wasn't sure if it was uh, gender flip, one of the gender flips or not. So I think that's one of those examples where you can actually do that. And I think flipping from Alan to Alana did mean you had to make some gender changes. And I can understand why people would be disappointed that she would be considered just a love interest. I personally don't think she is. I think that's not giving her enough credit for how capable yeah. and smart she is. And I also really love Caroline uh, Davernas. I think she's really mm-hmm. wonderful in that role. Mm-hmm. But the idea that, you know, oh God, there's a sex scene in the show it's now sort of, you know, ruined these characters. It's like, okay, first of all, that was hardly a normal sex scene. Have you heard but the music that accompanies Yes. I mean, all, I would take that job. Yeah, you're going to have to be in bed with you dancing Mass Mickelson. Fucking get it, girl. Yeah. I mean, I think having the sex scene basically using Alana as a prop for 
for Will and Hannibal to essentially be to fucking each other. I do definitely see the issue there. Was, I think that the show uh, could just be more. Um, but yeah, like if and, I if what I knew about Hannibal was what Alana knows about Hannibal, then yeah, I'd do him. I would. Well, do that's him. the point that. Brian Fuller made is in Alana's eyes Hannibal is the better looking Danish version of Fraser Crane so of course she would want to go for that. Yeah, Although I would prefer if it was Niles because I always like Niles better than Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to talk about Margot? Yeah I think so. Yeah. Um, Margot is, is interesting because she comes from a position both like by virtue of the plot basically of being a victim not because you know the show is torture porn or anything like that because well that's kind of the plot like you know she's in um she's needs a psychiatrist because she was traumatized victimized as a child by her brother and that, that's that like that's just something that's already established there so then as a character she has to just develop from that point a i, I have to say i wasn't sure exactly about the cast like I didn't think it was bad I was just kind of curious but I do really like how it worked out in the end let's just say mm -hmm. that with Catherine Isabel I think um, their version I really like it like I really like the way she's played it she, uh, she's played by Catherine Isabel yes. um, I don't know there's both how do I say this without sounding too much like a cliche but there seems to be a, a very specific mixture of vulnerability and strength in that character now Mm-hmm. That I do think she's she's gotten fairly well, um, and of course I, I'm approaching this as somebody who knows the plot of the books but hasn't actually read them. So like it's kind of a weird half, half like in the know position to be in. Yeah, the I I have not watched the Hannibal movie. I did read the Hannibal book, and literally the only thing I really remember about it is the. What happens to Krendler at the end? And what happens with Hannibal and Clarice at the end? And the horror of that drove the rest of the book out of my mind. <laughs> there was so much of my adolescence kind of ruined by that book. Yeah. But when I was growing up, I liked Margot as a character because I hadn't really read any queer characters in any greater sense in fiction. I'd read a couple. And this was one that I was sort of like... I, I found her role in the story interesting, but she's also... Thomas Harris is good at a lot of things. Gender and sexuality, no, not so much. <laughs> not I mean, really, no. You all know that from Silence of the Lambs and his ter his definition of, of, of transgender men and women. You know, We know that yeah. he can't do that. So when he gets to Margot, the basic... Margot is a bodybuilding, steroid-abusing lesbian who is imp it's implied that she is gay because her brother raped her. That because entire... that's how homosexuality works. Yeah, because, and that's yeah. like one of the things that Brian Fuller said. He changed, he removed the sexual abuse from it because the idea that being gay is caused by being raped is something that is has no. been... It it, is it's horrific, no. it's a lie, but it's also an idea that's been pushed through, still pushed around by many people today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to have the sexual assault removed from the story in that way was a big deal for me. And also to see Margot go from being this you know, this punching bag who really is on the sidelines to actually have her being a player in the game was really interesting for me. I actually think that she was being really good at getting these side characters to be involved in the story, like Freddie Lowndes, for example. Mm -hmm. She is actually a, you know, a piece on the board. She's important to what's going on. So having that happen to Margot 
was a big deal for me because I've always wanted to see Margot done well. I mean, you have to change certain things. And I think she does go through some horrific trauma. But when people said her sexuality was erased by her, spoiler alert, using Will to get pregnant, I just was like, no, you do not understand human sexuality at all. Hmm. I mean, I, I feel like there was a debate to be had there that was kind of drowned out by a lot of people, many of whom admitted to having never watched the show, coming out and saying, you're a misogynistic homophobe who's worse than Stephen Moffat. Yeah. To which I say, fuck you, no. <laughs> the hyperbole there. See, I don't know, like, I I don't want to sidetrack too much, but hey, we're Anglo fees. <laughs> but I, I'm kind of of two minds. Like, on one hand, I think, A, like, it was, you know, it was legitimate to the plot, and A, the, the idea is that she's not a lesbian anymore because she had sex with a man is bullshit, all kinds of bullshit. On the other hand, it does feel like, well, you brought in this openly gay character, but the only sex we see her having is heterosexual. And it kind of reminds me of the whole discussion we had around when Beverly died of... Everything that happened was legitimate to the story, but in the context in which the entire story exists, it was still it still had problems. And that's kind of how I feel about Margot's sex scene, is that everything that happened was legitimate to the plot and the story, but in a greater context of media that does not respect, uh, you know... LBGTQ people as somebody as people who can legitimately be depicted on TV, it it had a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely understand that. I would like to see Margot have a nice girlfriend because in the book she does. Mm-hmm. Although the girlfriend doesn't really do anything except exist to be hopefully impregnated by Margot's brother's sperm when they get the chance. <laughs> right. Sorry, well, given that Margot now no longer has. Um, her lady parts, as her brother so charmingly said. I hate oh, the fact God, that he that called was, them that. That was like that. That was seriously like the most horrific thing this it show has done. Really was. <laughs> oh. Until last night, which I still haven't seen. Oh well, that's. Uh, uh, you know what? Yes uh, and no, because I feel like in some ways there's this sh- shush. No, 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 I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking no, so about... I know what happens, but you can sort of vaguely... Yeah, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to yeah. talk in generalities. Because there's things that happen in a show like various murder tableaus, which are, like, they're, they're gross to watch, but you, these are fantasies, so... And then there are things that happen, like what happened to Margot, which is realistic enough to where it's actually worse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the murder tableau is not bad, because those don't have, like, there those is no... Those don't happen, and also, they're pretty. <laughs> But what happened to Margo <laughs> being, you know, like somebody abusing their power to the extent that they get to perform surgery on you and remove parts of you without your consent, like that's kind of, I feel like that's something that could happen. I mean, women are coerced in all sorts that of... That does respect. happen. Yeah, that does happen. That's why it's worse. Yeah. Um, and it also made total sense that he would do something that horrific. I mean, we talk about how Hannibal sees people as his puppets to play with. I think Mason sees them as something even less than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mason sees him like as Play-Doh to be squished around. Anyway, what was I saying? Right now that now that Margot has been forcibly sterilized, um, still in terms of Papa Verger's will, she's going to need a Verger heir to in order to continue to have access to the money. Um, 
which means that all those people who did in fact say that they wanted to see Fuller stay true to the books and have her forcibly getting sperm from him to impregnate a girlfriend or a patsy, hopefully a girlfriend, because I want her to be happy with somebody. I really, really do. Um, might I, actually get that if we get that far knock on wood. I did love that there was people who... Some, when, it, when the whole Margot having sex with Will came out, I saw someone on Tumblr say she would rather that she had impregnated herself with her brother's sperm. Yeah, because well. incest is preferable to a woman making a consensual sexual decision. Yeah. Although, can I just say that in addition to the whole, the realism we already discussed, the realism of uh, a gay person being forcibly sterilized also leaves me fairly uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of, I think that that what Hannibal the show and Fuller the showrunner deserve are nuanced discussions of... This is good. This is not so good. Like, I see your justifications for it, but I... Mm, mm, mm. As opposed to, oh my god, it's the best thing ever. Your fave could never. Or, Ryan Fuller is the worst human being to walk on the planet, and there doesn't seem to be any middle ground anymore. And internet, come on. We can do better than this. I we think can. we'll get that discussion eventually. I think it's going to have to be after the show is done and the dust has settled a little bit. Mm-hmm. But right now, I mean, there's a reason I can't, like, follow too many Hannibal tags on Tumblr right now. Because there was people admitting they'd never seen the show. And they were going on about how they should have the show cancelled and things. And it's like, you know, I don't come into your space and do that. I I mean, I'm not barging and telling everyone that everything Stephen Moffat does should be cancelled. Don't come into the space and pretend that you know everything. I mean, nuance does exist. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to have the discussion of strong female characters where your entire definition of sexuality is... Well, you said she's gay, so she has to say that she's gay in every single scene that she's in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was really uncomfortable with a lot, the way a lot of people, particularly women, were trying to define a character's sexuality. This idea that you're gay or you're straight, I found quite offensive. Right. Or hey, some of us do it the both ways. Yeah. <laughs> and the the fact that they apparently and these these are people who watch the show were like i watch the show where does she say she's gay it's like it's, she said she lacked the parts in the proclivity yeah i have the wrong proclivity for parts um that's that's what she meant that is what that meant she is wasn't being i do so- not like dick <laughs> yeah it wasn't exactly the most obscure reference she could have made although i do love the fact that mason referred to it as stitching buttons which is my new favorite <laughs> euphemism for yeah, lesbianism apparently because Standards and practices was like, no, you can't have muff diving. You can't have an obvious. <laughs> you can't make a very obvious reference to lesbian oral sex. That's not allowed. Butt crack. No butt crack. No references to lesbian oral sex. Meat wings, just fine. I, I don't, To be fair, this is the same guy that refers to them as lady parts, so I couldn't ever imagine him saying carpet muncher. So. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and Fuller has also been kind of open about the fact that there were people in the network and people in the writer's room who didn't want to make Margot a lesbian at all. This is also an area I have a lot of sympathy with for Brian Fuller, because when he did Dead Like Me, he left 
being the showrunner of that really, really early on, because he had some disagreements with the network, they turned a character he had as gay and sort of straight. Yes, mm-hmm. which they've, was they've done that in a couple father, instances right? with him. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I I can't com- for all there are issues I think we have to discuss, but I can't refer to a showrunner who has two shows with majority female cast as being worse than Stephen Moffat. Oh. Mm-hmm. Never gonna happen. Yep. On the other hand, didn't we just have a Tumblr post going around that said J.J. Abrams is the American Stephen Moffat? Yeah. Yes. Let's make some accurate comparisons here. Right. Can we talk about Star Trek for a second, Let's, please? Star Trek, Star Wars. We can talk about them both. We can at oh, some yeah, point talk about, about the homogenization of geek culture and making J.J. Abrams the heir apparent to two of our biggest and most defining franchises. Yeah, but they replaced J.J. Abrams with someone even worse. Did that, in fact, happen? I know. Are we talking about yeah. the directing choice, though? Yeah. Yeah, the the Bob Orsi as director. I mean, J.J. Abrams is still the producer, right, of both franchises. Has J.J. Abrams gone off on Reddit complaining that 9-11 was conspiracy yet? Or was that just Orsi? It might have just been Orsi. Boy, that film's going to be fun, isn't it? Yeah. All right, so... And, and I mean... Let's talk about Star Trek. Let's stop talking in coded language and flat out say, wow, wow, that is a pile of underwear-clad bullshit. Yeah. Here's a strong female character in underwear, because boobs. Right. Well, we had her in underwear in the first film. We've got this other woman. She has to be in underwear now. Equality! And there was this kind of horrifying post on Tumblr, not because the post was bad, but because the truths it revealed should horrify anybody in that most of these women who are caught in, you know, naked or semi-naked in the Star Wars movie are... Star Trek, sorry, in the Star Trek movies, it's because the the a man, more often the protagonist, invades their privacy. Yep. Yep, only one out of the three um, was actually consenting. Was Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And she's dead. Hmm. So, you know, don't fuck Kirk. Look, we have a woman on the bridge. The fuck are you complaining about? Right? It's... You know the, the really sad quote from Nichelle Nichols where she talked about how you know, the original script would come in and she'd be like, okay, this is fine. And then as it made, like, the executive rounds, basically they would take all the lines away from her and give it to other characters. Mm-hmm. And in the end, she she was like, do I need to read this? I know how to say hailing frequencies open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she was going to quit until um, Martin Luther, Luther King... King Jr. asked her not to. Yeah. Ah. Uh. Come on, we can do better than this. I mean, the second Star Trek movie feels on many levels just on basic storytelling elements because it says it's going to repeat the same film, you know, the first film all the way through. But it seemed to just treat women as commodities in an even bigger way. Like the character um, that Alice Eve played, what was her name? I thought I can't even remember her name, I think it's a bad sign. Where she just has to be. Where she just has to be in a bikini. Why? Because the script asked for it. Yeah. It was the same thing with them. Um, oh well, how are we going to get women to come see the Star Trek movie? Let's have someone giving birth because the bitches love childbirth. Yep. I know. I love watching films where women are just in screaming agony, trying to push a life out of them. Right. That's the only reason I go to the cinema. Puts me in my place. Exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. Come on, Alina, you got a crap out of kid. Ah. <sighs> uh. But then we've got now the... Dear um... listeners, I'm not actually telling Alina she needs to crap out a kid. <laughs> That's okay, the patriarchy does it for you. <laughs> but now we have the um, the new Star Wars movie, which I have opinions about. One, can we stop giving J.J. Abrams jobs, please? Please. Second of all, the entire galaxy at your fingertips, including... Uh, myriad of extended universe stories, games, fan activities that have really been some of the benchmark of fandom of the past 40 years. And none of that matters because look, there's one woman there. Look, we've brought in one new woman. Look, she's there. She's not played by anyone you've ever heard of. I'm sure she's lovely. I have, you know, lots of hope for her. But I think that there's something very big to be said there, which is you have what? the entire universe at your disposal and women still are invisible. Kaylee, what are you wanting about? We have 100% more women than we did in the tr- original trilogy. 100%. Um, 100%. Let me rewind back and let's go back to the original trilogy. So we have Princess Leia. Dear listeners, let's... that was also scar- sarcasm. And I'm feeling defensive. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Princess Leia, who is okay, legitimately in the strong female characters category, you know, she was the leader of the rebellion, we saw her with a gun, so probably quite a few teen girls who saw the movies were pretty happy about that, but we need to put her in a bikini and make her Mm -hmm. a sex slave. Yeah, thank God for Carrie Fisher, because she was the one who said, no, 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 I get to fucking kill Jabba the Hutt. I get to do that. And Lucas listened to her. Thank Thank God. God. Although, you know, I love it when they, they're like, okay, we're going to put you in a bikini, so you're going to need to lose 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. Well, she was apparently pretty strung out on coke during that whole... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that helped greatly. Well done, Carrie. If you ever get a chance to read Carrie Fisher's book, Wishful Drinking, which is about her her early rise to fame and just being coked to the tits for most of it, it's absolutely hilarious. And the front cover is... Her with the Princess Leia buns holding a martini glass. Atta girl. Hey, do you remember that one time I told you about how uh, I met Hugh Jackson by seeing his show? Yes. Carrie Fisher yeah. was given a show at the same time in Toronto, so she was in the audience and like he pulled her up to say hi. I think you did mention that part. I'm just saying. Did she touch your hand too? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's just Alina reminding us that Hugh Jackman once touched her. Yep. And I saw Carrie Fisher. Well, we were talking about Carrie Fisher. Rubbing it in. I know. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, we're back to speculative fiction, uh, which is kind of the area of, well, what's your excuse? Mm. Of not writing enough women into the story. <sighs> yeah. It helps to perpetuate this idea that only men write sci-fi and only men read sci-fi. Because... Mm-hmm. Margaret Cavendish and Mary Shelley and Octavia Butler and how many other women have written? Quite a few, right? They, yeah, who are they? The, Anne McCarthy, C.J. Cherry, any of the other modern sci-fi writers? Are... Anne Leckie's new book, Ancillary Justice, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And the way that she handles gender in that, everyone is referred to as having a female pronoun. Nice! Just the way that entirely twists the, everything you know about science fiction on its head and is so revolutionary, even for it shouldn't be because it's such a simple idea and yet she seems to be the first one that has done it to the acclaim that she has and 
at least in recent times, this is not an area of expertise for me. Mm-hmm. So you should all go read that book. Well, let's talk about the treatment of, so while we are on Star Wars. Let's go back to the reviled prequels <laughs> and talk about Padme. Because talk about character that was fridged. <laughs> fridged for like two sequel, well, one, but it'll be ultimately two sequel um, trilogies full of angst for male characters. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we knew that was going to happen. Yeah. I did. But... And the thing is, I, I'm sure there are people who would argue that the story of the original trilogy kind of locks them into it, but I think that would be a bullshit argument because all the story establishes is that Luke does not know her and, you know, Leia kind of rem- has hazier memories of her. There's plenty to write within those confines that do not require her to become a sacrificial lamb on the altar of male angst. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're expecting a lot from George Lucas here. Yes, you're. <laughs> My favorite thing about that is where she just has gives birth to these children and she immediately has names for them. For some reason, I find that hilarious. No, she lives just feel- long enough to name. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like to give Natalie Portman a little bit of credit here, no actor comes out of those films, okay? Like, they have nothing to work with. I mean, she has no characterization to work with and as fridged as a character... But you take one of the great villains of of film history and reduced him to someone who should be sitting listening to Simple Plan in his bedroom. <laughs> no, that's true. Um, and I see that as someone who can defend yeah. the prequels to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Ewan really McGregor cool. did the absolute best he could. <laughs> and he managed to sort of keep the... The number of times that you would sort of see him die a little bit inside to <laughs> a, a fair minimum. I mean, if you watch the last Airbender movie, which I don't recommend, I did, but I don't recommend it. Um, there are a number of times that you can see Jackson Rathbone say a line and then clearly thinking, oh my god, that just came out of my mouth. When the Fuck guy that did four Twilight movies is thinking that, you know you've got it back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think Ewan McGregor did the best he could. And Christopher Lee just got to chew on some scenery and that made him happy because it keeps his teeth from growing too much. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson got a badass motherfucking lightsaber. So. And everyone else got a paycheck. And now we can go full circle back to Marvel. Because we mentioned <laughs> Samuel Jackson. And we can go back to female characters that actually did make us happy. Like Melinda May. Melinda May. There's a woman I can get behind. I yeah. didn't mean that to sound the way it sounded, but I'm okay yeah. with that. Yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. Don't lie. Yes, you... I, I really hope that we get more backstory or story with her and her mother um, because I cheered so hard when it was a Joy Luck Club reunion. The woman playing her mother was not the woman who played her mother in the Joy Luck Club, which would have been awesome, but was still one of the mothers from the Joy Luck Club. Um, And there's so 
much said there and the fact that Melinda May flopped in that SUV seat like a sullen teenager was hilarious to me but mom mom yeah and I think I think we need to talk about Sky a little bit is there are people who have been going on and on of Sky's just a Mary Sue Sky's just I mean Sky is a plot MacGuffin and that is true but she's a plot MacGuffin with agency who learns and grows through the series especially once the series itself was let off the leash and allowed to roam freely as it was meant to do mm-hmm. um yeah sky was a character like i do think the series got better at handling the characters we found boring in the first few episodes both ward and Warden Sky, because when they were pushed in us as kind of the leads in the first few episodes, it didn't feel organic and it was kind of boring. But as they allowed Sky to be just part of a team of various people, and she was just one of them, like then it was easier to see her as, you know, an interesting character in person and not just the plot device MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. And I think as an... Like, I think when the show found itself as an ensemble show, it became much better than the beginning episodes when it felt like certain characters were being pushed in us in prominence that they as characters didn't deserve yet, really. Mm-hmm. So that that was... Um, I mean, which is... To try to bring it back to the topic, which is to say that in in any given in media like a show, maybe I don't really expect um, a, any character, male or female, to kind of fit the fully developed, uh, you know, strong female character or interesting or fully realistic female character right off the bat. Like mm-hmm. that's the whole point of having the long running series is for people to develop as people. Just have them have some sort of realistic basis as a person from which they can grow. <laughs> yep. And have a nice and I um, agents of shield on the show where like the, the characters of both genders, but even if we isolate the female specifically, do have some nice variety, you know, because you have Simmons, um, who's <sighs> who's incredibly smart but not particularly physically badass. Yeah, and Melinda May, who is the physically <laughs> physical badass, mm-hmm. um, and Sky, who you know, who's like your quirky nerd. Yeah, Sky, Sky is Sky is the heart. I think. Yeah. Um, but also um, a show like that like I appreciate they're also working within the confines that as much as um, they probably want to write realistic characters in terms of personality this is a show about secret agents so they do have to have a certain level of (laughs) badassery let's say just by default because if they were just your average person off the street they wouldn't be an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. that's kind of it so it's okay to work if you're a medium you know and you have a a certain setting like obviously you have to work within that setting Mm-hmm. That's not to say that you have to write um, a woman into that who who's who wouldn't basically have any skills to survive, but you feel to survive in that context. But you feel you have to have her just to have a realistic woman. Like no, that's not how you avoid criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we don't want to be too harsh or kind of just try to put unrealistic expectations on shows, but. I think it's a good example of how you can still have variety while maintaining a certain baseline that these characters, that these people would realistically need to be in that situation. Yep. Which is to say we actually like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. a bit better now and we'll talk about it in a future episode. 
<laughs> I'll have to catch up with it then because I have not got around to it. I'm glad I'm glad to hear that it has gotten better, but my TV schedule has gotten so full, partially yeah. full of really great shows, partially full of just self-inflicted masochism. Yeah, Shield Shield definitely um, improved by leaps and bounds once The Winter Soldier was out. And they were able to work with the plot, the universe changes that were in that movie. Uh-huh. Although I still, I need at least a webisode where Hawkeye comes back from a deep cover mission or vacation or whatever. And he's like, guys, I got Starbucks. What the <laughs> fuck just happened? What? Oh my God. <laughs> Natasha, why are our headquarters at fire? Right, Natasha. Whatever, Clint. Get my flat iron. Go yeah, now. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So, um, I, I I don't feel like we solved anything in this episode. No, but <laughs> we gave people some food for thought. Oh, I have a Helen Mirren quote. I've okay. been lies that I found through Google. Thank you, Google. Uh, quote, two phrases I hate in reference to female characters are strong and feisty. They really annoy me. It's the most condescending thing. You say that about a three-year-old. It infantilizes women. I think that's a good way to end. <laughs> I think that uh, Queen Helen has nailed it right there. Um, so this has been episode 20 of Anglo Fees. We said things. We Maybe hope you enjoyed the discussion. And um, if you have any comments, you can leave them on our webpage at anglofees.madeoffail.net. You can email us at anglofees at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at anglofees. At anglofees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> and we have a Tumblr. I'm not going to say what it is. I think you have to guess. There's a link. Whatever. (laughs) And we will be back at you next month um, to talk about Dracula. And all your blood-sucking goodness. And why NBC should be very, very ashamed of themselves. Oh, bless. (laughs) NBC canceled Dracula, guys. We knew it was going to happen. Oh, yeah. We knew it was going to happen, and we're kind of relieved. (laughs) I've got the entire box set on my TV to watch, so... I have homework for next episode. I I need to watch the the Gary Oldman movie all the way through, because I've seen it in, like, bits and snippets. It's so good. Right. I need to... I haven't watched the movie in many, many, possibly, like, 20 years. Because I am old, y'all. Man, how old is the movie? Uh, the one, I believe. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, it holds Almost up. As old I think. As me. Um, and I also need to read the book, and I bought the the annotated version upon recommendation of our special guest, who is our senior historical vampire correspondent, Cleo Linda Jones. Yay! I uh propose the idea to her and she's like I'm all over that yes now yes okay sure okay we hope you're all over that too listeners so come back next month so that's been 
that, and we have to figure out a better way to end these. Bye, everybody! Bye! Goodbye! You have been listening to Anglophies, a Made of Fail production.